what we're focusing on is making better and better wine all the time. But in order to do that, you have to have a good time. There has to be a certain amount of levity and laughter and camaraderie and familialship and good music played and good food eaten and all of those things. You know, you sterility is not going to make a great wine. It's going to make a clean wine. We're looking to make great wines. That comes from in here. You know, that comes from deep down. Welcome to Consensus and Conversation, a podcast where I talk to change makers across America who are making the world a better, more sustainable place. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, and today I'm talking with Russell Fromm, founder of Herman Story Wines, and Delia Fromm, founder of Desperado Wines, both of which are located in Paso Robles in California's Central Coast. I've had the pleasure of knowing Russell and Delia for quite a while. Delia has seen the industry in all its forms, whether it's winemaking and harvesting or cold calling for sales and working on restaurant floors. She's done it all, done it well, and it's all culminated in the creation of her vineyard, Desperada. Russell, meanwhile, is a man of the earth. He's a self-described proprietor, winemaker, and wastewater specialist, though I would think of him more like a creative genius when it comes to venting. Whether it's a wine that stayed in contact with grape skins for the entire duration of harvest, or Tomboy, the vineyard's only white wine described as, quote, white wine for red wine lovers, Russell's constantly pushing the boundaries of wine and winemaking. Nothing's more fun than a conversation with good friends over great wine, so it's my pleasure to welcome them both on today's episode, which, by the way, also features us toasting with wine from their vineyards, hence the casual conversational vibe. Hey, it's basically the holidays, so sit back, relax, pour yourself a glass of wine, and hit play. Hi, guys. Hi, how how are you? I'm well. Thanks for doing this. I'm so excited. It's great. Um, We have... But I was going to wait to open it until you were here because I'm going to try to see if I can get the ambient noise of the pop. So you sent him ahead um, a bottle of bubbles. Oh, there you go. Um, Sounded that sounded pretty good. Okay, tell us what we just opened. What are we about to drink? Uh, You are enjoying the 2019, as of yet unlabeled Blanc de Blanc by Scarab Wines. Uh, which is a new spark method champenois sparkling project based here in the central coast. Those grapes are from McBride Vineyard, which is a very small, um, own rooted, almost 50 year old plantings of Chardonnay. It's a small three acre vineyard that only has Chardonnay and it's from York mountain, which is a um, kind of a, it's not a sub AV of Paso, but it's actually older than the Paso AV. It's this little tiny area up in the kind of mountains going out towards the coast. So I will say I am lucky enough to know y'all and um, have spent plenty of days or evenings drinking with each of you individually. I've never actually hung out with you guys together, oddly. Um, we've talked a lot about your potential addition uh, of testing sparkling. Is this is this you? Yeah. So I, as you know, have a hankering for sparkling wine. And so does one of our colleagues that we work with. His name is Cameron Stoffel. He's also started his own brand. He makes his label called Ultima Thule, which is really awesome. He's been making that here at Herman's Story since 2012, 14, something like that. Uh, And a few years ago, we just started talking about our love of sparkling and how cool it would be to start a sparkling project. Now, if you start fast forward to right now, it's amazing how many are in the works. So I think 
it's definitely caught on and, and people are really trying to not just put out like a quick pet nat or, you know, send one off to, you know, rack and riddle and have it made for them. But we are hearing about more and more small brands that are really wanting to produce really high quality sparkling. So I'd like to say that we were ahead of the curve, but that's not really true. But because it takes so long, this process to make really properly good sparkling, you know, we started this in 19 and that one was only aged entourage for a year and a half, but we're looking for like two to four years, at least for going forward. So we have 20 and 21 already bottled and aging entourage, but it's going to be another year and a half to two and a half years before we even start releasing. I know that sparkling is not necessarily Russell's most exciting thing, but I think he's coming around a little bit. I think every time we open a bottle of bubbles, I think you like it a little bit more. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get out of my bubble, but I am enjoying sparkling wine more and more. And I'm very uh, proud of the two of them to do it. It's a lot of work. We've been doing this a long time. You never want to get bored in the wine business. You always want to be creating something cool and uh, it's a big challenge and I'm glad I can be a part of it. And then I can sit on the outside and just kind of armchair quarterback the whole thing. And I don't really have to take a whole lot of credit. So that makes it nice too. (laughs) But after 20 years of making Herman's story, like you, you do get, you know, we're always trying to come up with new ideas and new concepts and new wines. So let's, let's think about that years and years and years ago at the beginning Everyone has, I think, such a romanticized version of the wine business, the wine industry. Tell us how your love of wine began, each of you. So my love of wine began in the restaurant business. So I did not grow up in a wine drinking family. They barely ate good food. So we were just trying to get by and they didn't they didn't drink. And up until the time I was 18, I had never tasted wine and certainly not good wine. Um, but I started in a restaurant and doing fine dining and quickly got indoctrinated and introduced to this whole other world of fine wine and fine food. And I think like so many people just caught the bug. Yeah. For, well, for me, I was go. I went to Cal Poly and uh, did ag business and crop science. So I was really wanting to be outside. I really wanted to do like the vineyard stuff and well, and I really wanted to do produce and row crops and stuff like that because Santa Maria is big on that. My parents live in Salinas Valley and I think it kind of started with food, started with wine. And then the fact that I really wanted to do something outside lent itself to me getting an internship in the Salinas Valley. But I was de- I was supposed to get an internship doing broccoli and lettuce and all this. And the owner had a uh, was partners in a winery and he sent me over there and they were desperate for help. So I started working there and got really into it. And I worked at a big custom crush, huge custom crush where there's 25, 30 wineries in Santa Maria called Central Coast Wine Services. And I really got to taste everybody's style. You know, some people were picking early and making Burgundian style Pinot Noirs really wasn't my thing. Some people were waiting and I got to really learn a lot on all these other people's dime. And that kind of got me into big wines. You each have your own wine business. So how about let's hear the intro story to Desperata first, and then and then we'll hear the Herman's story story. Gotcha, yeah. So I own a small winery in the Tin City area of Paso Robles in the central coast of California. So Tin City has kind of grown up in the last decade to be this uh, urban winemaking kind of neighborhood. It's a great place to make wine and sell wine 
though a lot of my grapes come from all over the central coast and Brussels as well. And he'll talk about that, but, you know, we work in both Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County. So we're traveling all over the, all over both counties to source grapes. I'd say probably only about 30% of my grapes come from Paso itself, but it's a great place to have a winery and to start. So after all the restaurant gigs, I did some wine brokering for a while. I went back to school to try to get my W set and then my master of wine and did all these things and um, had never actually made wine. I'd always been on the the marketing side and the sales side. And so in 07, I found myself living in Canada and working for an importer up there. And we thought, hey, why don't we why don't we try our hand at producing our own based out of California and importing it into Canada? And so I came down here and before you know it, I met this dude. And in 2011, he moved to your own facility, which is Herman's Story, which is where he is now. You know, he said, why don't you bring your barrels over and, and come work with me? And so we started his winery here in Paso Robles. And now, you know, eight years later or seven and a half years later, I do about 4,000 cases a year. Half my production is white, half is red. Uh, out of that, we do about 15 different SKUs a year. So we really try to focus on trials and experimentation and new grapes. But the basis is, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Bordeaux varietals, as well as Italians. There's a lot of similarities in uh, our story. I worked at the Custom Crush, which I talked about earlier, and uh, learned, you know, you see all these different people making wine. And it's, I cut my teeth down at Santa Maria. And about 10 years into it, I said, well, Santa Maria, it just wasn't a great spot to get a lot of direct-to-consumer. Santa Maria is a tough place. It's not a destination for people from Cleveland, Miami, and Chicago, but I'll tell you, Paso is that. They come from all over the place to come here. And so I said, you know, it's going to be better for business if I move up to Paso. And I was getting some more and more grapes from up here. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is we have industrial wineries. So she's in uh, Tin City, where it's uh, metal buildings, and like you, she was saying, and all these different businesses. And then I'm between a tire shop and a welding gas supply place. And the office we're actually sitting in is right next to a mechanic shops, which is on the opposite end of our facility. And so, like Bailey was saying, we moved in this facility here in Paso on 11. And I bounced around all kinds of places, anywhere I could find a little spot to hold my barrels and to work. And finally, in 2011, we bought our own equipment. And then uh, when she moved uh, to Tin City, it allowed me to occupy her space and let me get a little bigger. I'm up about 8,000, 8,500 cases. And we all work as a team. And our staff and our team is what really makes it here. So uh, it's never been better, to tell you the truth. I think we're on top of our game better than we ever have. And we get better and better every year. And that's one of the things that drives us is you got to keep thriving to get better and better. So given your background in agriculture coming kind of from that academic perspective, I'm really curious how you think about the importance of stewardship for the land, caring about the land. Yes. So on the small scale, we try to really be stewards and we do all ours organic we don't have roundup everything that we do we try to be conscious of everything the water use our neighbors the sound we even think about our tractors like how loud they are what time we're going to do any tractor work and then you know there the other side is uh just like any other ag industry it's pump it out let's how can we you know, get as much as we can. And um, 
unfortunately, you have that in certain areas. We don't get fruit from those kind of places. But and that's why having our own places, it's been a dream and it's been a lot of toil, but it's a pretty amazing thing. But we're still figuring that out too, as you know, we bought an existing vineyard that was, you know, 50. 15 year old vines at the time, 20 year old vines now. And now we just finished three weeks ago, putting in vines into a new plot of land. And so seeing the difference in those two things and really looking around us. And when, when you go up to York mountain and our vineyards, but just that whole mountain, like you feel the power and the presence of that place. And so you want to be a steward. You want to act responsibly. You want to do that. And at the same time, you know, you look around at the habitat up there And how do you respect it when at the end of the day, we're talking about a monoculture and there is no way that a monoculture is ever, you know, sustainable, what for one generation, two generations, 10 generations, like that's not really sustainability. Like, do you even really know what the word sustainability means? And if so, you're looking way far ahead because as people that make a product from a a monoculture uh, that is here in our area, it's, it's a really hard thing to, to do when you want to be really for thinking and, and environmental. And so, We talk a lot about that. Like, what can we do? Like, how sustainable can we be? Like, how organic can we be? You know, planting cover crops, planting wildflowers, putting in orchards, putting in a communal garden for, you know, all the laborers and everybody else that's in that community, you know, respecting all the animals and the bees and the mountain lions and everything that's up there. It's, um, you know, and then talking about the the labor crews and, you know, all of the... um, the people that work up there and the support and the, you know, what that means and employment and fair work and all that. So there's, there's a lot that goes into just growing this one crop. Sustainability is a big thing and stewardship of the land. Those are great terms, but if you, they're just, they're really big. They're really big and broad. Awesome. If you had to explain what organic means to you, so forget about the associations and the criteria and certifications. Like when you guys aim to, to grow and make organic, like, what does that mean to you? Right. So to, to speak to the organic question, I've never asked him this or vice versa, but to me, when, when something is organic, it means that you are not using any pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, no chemicals, nothing unnatural is going into there. So that's kind of, to me, a basic, right? But a little bit deeper, I think you also have to be looking at the topsoil and the microbes and the, the overall biome of the soil and the health in there, because it's not just the plant and what you're putting on it, it's everything around it. And so organic also to me means like, you know, and you said, you know, you look around at some vineyards and there's not a weed or a plant or a flower at the whole place. Like that tells me that there is very unhealthy, sad soil that is just putting up all the energy into vines, but all those little bugs and insects and microbes and all those little cool things in the soil and that cover crop and everything else, that's the holistic side of organicism that I think is really important too. It's not just not using, you know, something bad on there. It's also contributing to the overall um, health of, 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 a, of a property and whether that's a vineyard or whether you're talking row crops or you're an orchard or whatever it is. So Yeah, I would say my definition is doing absolutely your best to do as little to uh, push the plants. It's a caring thing for me because I think organic has been used very loosely. Organic farmers in Salinas Valley can absolutely nuke the ground and three or four years later, there ain't going to be weed going to grow for another 20 years because they just nuked it. And three or four years later, they can call it organic because they haven't done anything that's not organic. They did it at the beginning. So don't get fooled by it. 
And that's where I think a lot of these associations and there there's certifications that they sell everywhere. And it's like, how are, are you really trying to do your best? And they always are tied into kind of, we're doing our best association, da, 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 some acronym. But for organic, for me, is you are doing everything you can to do your best. How did the pandemic affect business? For me, you know, it's really hard. Like the pandemic was incredibly heartbreaking and stressful, um, both personally and from a business perspective for many people, including us, you know, like furloughing employees and waking up one morning and not knowing if your business was going to make it. And just the absolute feeling like looking at our, our home and our child and our employees and their families, and just absolutely feeling almost unable to move because of fear of holy shit, what's happening. And then a couple of days go by and you like put one foot in front of another and you just move on and you make it all happen. So there was that for sure. But there's also a lot of businesses and people that didn't fare well through this. And so it's hard. Uh, there's a sense of guilt for me to come out and say, we did, we fared very well because everyone was drinking, whether that's good or bad. I mean, we needed something to lighten the stress a little bit. And so, you know, we saw a huge increase in direct sales to consumer right off the bat and people just wanting to support us and buy wine and not see us go under. Like I had a guy call and offer to pay me futures. Like I was Bordeaux, like I'll, I'll pay for the next four shipments just to, I mean, we saw so many acts of beauty and kindness to help keep us going that it's, um, you know, if I was, if I was prone to crying, I'd shed a tear right now. It really, it really hit home. What motivates you to do what you do every day? Getting to do what I do every day. That's honestly the motivation. Like, so when I get up, I get to go to work. It's a pleasure. It's a, I'm grateful. It's, this is a gift. I haven't seen it any other way since I started working for myself in 2009. That is the motivation. Like I heard someone say once, instead of like thinking that there's enough hours in the day, it's like you never have enough time. Like that is the mark of success or, or liking what you do or whatever. There are never enough minutes in a day for me to accomplish everything I want to accomplish. When I turned 40, which was uh, now, well, six and a half years ago, I said, oh, I retired. I got a job at a winery. That's how I feel. And sometimes people don't have content in their life or say, oh man, this is what I really want to do or they retire from some business and then they go and they find something that they wish they would have done in all their lives. And then we get to do what, what we want, but the number one thing is making fine wine. The wine quality is number one and the better the wine and the more we focus on the wine quality, then it leaves room for really crazy shit that we do. And, and if you look on our website or tasting notes and all our other things. We want to have fun. We don't, we don't want to be what everybody thinks of as a winery and we don't want to be intimidating and anybody can come and enjoy our wines. And we get people that want to come in here and, and they want a very sophisticated tasting. We hope we give them that. And then there's other people that are here to just, Hey, you know, I know I, I just want to sit and enjoy the wine. And, um, It'd be interesting to send a survey to our wine club. What do they think of us? Do they think of us as sophisticated? Do they think of us as wild? Do they think of us as uh, highfalutin, little 
fancy winery in Paso? I don't know. That, but it goes both ways. That because we have so much fun and because it is such, you know, even though the wines are very serious and we put, I mean, that is obviously why we're here and what we're focusing on is making better and better wine all the time. But in order to do that, you have to have a good time. There has to be a certain amount of levity and laughter and camaraderie and familialship and good music played and good food eaten and all of those things, you know, you sterility is not going to make a great wine. It's going to make a clean wine. And that's where we're looking to make great wines. And you have to, that's, uh, that comes from in here, you know, that comes from deep down. One of my favorite sayings is in vino veritas or with wine comes truth, even if it's a harsh truth. So send us off today with your wine wisdom. Are there any sayings or sources of inspiration that you look to when thinking about wine, business, or just life in general? I tell the people in the taste room, I said, hey, don't tell the other winemakers, but if you make it taste good, people are going to want to buy it. It's all based on taste. I, we don't, I don't look at an iPad and say, oh, I'm going to add this barrel and that barrel and this barrel. I get my ass out of my office and I go taste that barrel, that barrel, and that barrel, and I blend it together if it tastes good. And that's what you want. You want something that tastes good. You know how people have dogs that look like their owner? Uh, if you think about wine, a lot of times wine looks like the winemaker. Like my wines are a little rustic, a little he rough around true. the edge. My wife's are powerful, elegant, beautifully. They flow. Uh, you look at another winemaker where they're really uptight and they're kind of like, you wouldn't want to hang out with them or maybe they don't know how to cook and don't drink good wine at home. You know what? The wines are linear, lean, not very good. Think about it. Next time you go wine tasting, think about the winemaker and say, oh, wow, this winemaker, this kind of looks like the wine. little, uh, old wisdom from this old man. That's a good one. Uh, Since you asked what other things really get me excited that I do in my personal life that get me thinking about wine, since you asked, um, my daughter, our daughter, sorry, it actually is his, (laughs) this is our daughter. (laughs) If you saw her, she looks just like me. There ain't no doubt. He's seen her. Um, Our daughter and I are starting a new business We just started about a week ago. We're super excited for everybody out there that hasn't met our daughter. She's almost seven in June. So she's, she's pretty young, but, uh, we got to talking about making our own salt and how I thought it would be super cool if we started making beach specific salt from up and down the central coast. We were at sushi a few weeks ago and we went to this place and the the chef pulls out a little bit of a little bit of something out of a pot and puts it on the uh, on the sashimi. And I was like, what's that? He's like, it's salt. I go, oh, it's really special. Where is it from? He's like, well, it's from the beach down there. I just go get it and then I make salt out of it. And I was like, I make my own deodorant and face wash and I never thought about making my own salt. Like, that's brilliant. So Minnie and I got a bucket with a lid and we went down to Cerro Bluffs last weekend and we got a bucket of water and we came home and we're as we're walking back from the beach she's like oh this is great and I was like yeah we can do our own beach specific you know salt and she's like yeah we could go to Cayucas we go to Pismo we could go down to Lompoc we go to Baywood and I was like yeah great and she's like we can put it in little pots and we could have our friend Elena make these little salt cellars I was like yeah that's a great idea and she's like then it's recyclable and reusable and I was like yeah you're right that's amazing and then uh, I said what do you want to call it and without missing a beach she said any beach sea salt co and i was like oh all right well we just did that so i I knew she was a genius i knew she was a genius 
what six-year-olds know what a co is? It's a co. It's ridiculous. But anyways, so I'm very excited. So I went, we went home that night. We started boiling it down. We started watching videos about temperature and duration and all of that and the slurry. And, you know, now I'm really excited to go learn more about salt making, but it's all combined, right? Like I could take the time to sit down and get the chemistry books and I could, I could learn all of that. But then that would take time away from really tasting and, and trialing and experimenting in the cellar. And yes, it's important to have that kind of basis of knowledge, but, um, but you know, you spend too much time on that and you miss, you miss the flavor part of it. So, but this was really cool because as it's cooking down and you're seeing the slurry grow and then you mess with the temperature and you see the flakes increase versus the granularity. And I was like, it's a whole new thing. In my spare time, we're going to start a salt company. Huge thanks to Russ and Velia for both the wine and the conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. And special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.